You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey guys, welcome to Land and Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. We're co-owners of a consulting company called, go figure, Land and Legacy. This is your number one podcast resource for all things land. Each week we're breaking down topics from land management, habitat management, conservation, farming practices, and real estate. We hope you guys enjoy it. Hey guys, welcome back. Hey, hey, hey. We are here in the timber, in the woods, recording. What, what better t- what better place to be? Time and place. When we are going to be interviewing one of our favorites. Yep. Um, which is a little bit... Uh, I'm ashamed. It's sad that it took us till, I don't know, one... It's really hard to say what number of podcasts we're on by now because... I think it'll say like 148 or 149, and but well, we've we, done the long-winded. Yeah. We did the for love of the land, so we're somewhere around like 175 total. It's a it's a little bit embarrassing that it took us this long to get this man on the podcast. Yeah, I, I think uh, we have certainly a lot of mutual respect for. Um, this gentleman that we're going to have on today, and I'm you said super mutual. We don't know if he respects us. So, I, I, yeah, you know, <laughs> we 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 chatted, we chatted. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe I'm just more hopeful than anything, <laughs> <laughs> confident, I guess. Um, but this topic right here, what we're going to talk about today, I think it's going to be very eye opening. Um, and and put a lot of people. I don't I don't want to say in their place, but but put things into perspective on the value um, or the lack of value that something produces or has on a landscape that honestly people overestimate. We don't know, we don't know its limitations or respect the limitations of this resource, yet we, we think it's just so great and so grand. That's right. So we have Mr. Dr. Craig Harper coming on the podcast this week to discuss a recent article that they have in the QDMA Quality Whitetails August-September edition. Yep. Um, so if you want to know exactly, we'll put a link in the, I think you can link to the Should be able to. Article. Yep. Um, but if you're not a QDMA member by now, you ought to be. 
Um, and You're foolish. You should be ashamed of yourself. Um, great magazine. All members get quality whitetails. One of my favorite reads, uh, favorite things to get in the mail. Um, and and this article was just, I, I remember when I got it, I saw it, I started scanning it, and then I read it, and I text Chad and uh, my brother Chad and Matt, and I said, have you guys got that article yet? Go check it out because it's awesome. It's it's that good. And it's it's honestly, thankfully, it's one of those things that, Okay, now there's science and numbers to be able to associate what we've been saying on the podcast forever. But now here's the real science. Here's the real data. That's kind of like, see, you can't, you can't tell us we're wrong. Here it is, guys. So um, anyhow, I'm excited to hear from Craig and what he's got to say about the research done on acorns and, and deer management. Yes, oaks and, and uh, t- timber stand improvement. Yes. And if for us, you know, you've listened to the podcast hopefully for a while now, or if you're just joining us, thanks for thanks for uh, finding us and, and tuning in. Um, when you look at what we do as being consultants um, and our full-time job, consultants, real estate agents, um, habitat, native habitat, uh, plants, gurus, or not gurus, nerds, let's say, um, this is a man that we respect so much we respect we love his work at the university of tennessee and his involvement with qdma and uh there's hardly anyone better to look at for information and Mm -hmm. and uh a very we'll probably laugh a lot through this podcast because he is so blunt um and he speaks a lot of direct truth and experience and he's unbiased and yep. I, I I love his work and, and everything he does with QDMA and University of Tennessee. So we're excited to have him on. Hopefully you guys are as well. Absolutely. All righty, Mr. Harper, are you there? I'm here. All right. Man, we are excited to have you on uh, the podcast and talking about timber management, acorn management, and how that relates to overall deer management and property management. I know for a lot of people, we we quoted this in pre-show, but uh, we're referencing one of your articles in the latest, I think it's the latest, the August-September issue of Quality Whitetails, and just some fascinating research and information here that I feel is something that a lot of people can overlook and not utilize. And so, as uh, Dr. Harper will probably say, for, for in our experience, especially in the eastern eastern United States and South, um, timber country is a huge part of what we have to manage for deer. And a lot of times we see it going unmanaged for fear of things of removing the trees that are going to produce acorns and other uh, uh, other reasons for various excuses yeah various excuses <laughs> to get to work i guess and so dr harper before we jump into this article though i would hope that our listeners know who you are and are aware of your work and your books but could you give us a a rundown of of your background um well um a professor of wildlife management and the extension wildlife specialist at the University of Tennessee. I've been here, uh, gosh, over 21 years now. And all of the research that I do is applied, management-oriented. Um, it's stuff that land managers 
can use and uh, put on the ground or towards their population management strategies, uh, especially with regard to deer, but also for, for, you know, many other species, especially upland game species. So, uh, I mean, I don't know what all you want me to get into, but we've conducted uh, research not only with regard to habitat management, old field management, and early successional communities, forest management, food plots, fire and herbicides, you know, the things that the, the tools that people use to, to manage land. And we have done uh, work with white-tailed deer, wild turkeys, rough grouse, northern bobwhite, uh, shrubland and grassland songbirds. I mean, one of the latest ones even was on fire effects on eastern box turtles. So uh, a, a lot of different things. But my interest came from when I was growing up in the Piedmont of North Carolina on a small farm, you know, walking around behind my daddy and uncles and grandpa when I was a boy hunting and uh, always been outside doing things. And so when I decided to go to school, I wanted to do something that was um, related to, to wildlife and something that may be used in my passion for hunting and uh, I guess another passion of mine you might say is I, I, I very very much so enjoy trying to help people and so that's a perfect fit for extension as an extension wildlife specialist I work closely with extension agents and also with, especially with state wildlife agencies, but also with NRCS, uh, U.S. Forest Service, and, and other agencies, trying to deliver or, quote, extend information that we have discovered through research to practitioners, can, to practitioners who can use it in, in their jobs. So uh, there's a lot of research that, you know, for example, might you know, tell you about how many hairs per square inch there are on a deer's back. I mean, that's kind of interesting information, but that's not the kind of thing I do. Uh, we work on on applied management strategies that, that people can use in managing their land and the wildlife resource, if that, if that is good enough in a nutshell. Yeah, I think that pretty well covers it. <laughs> um, Fun stuff. Fun that's stuff. exactly right. Absolutely. You're, you're the type of – your work is – and and I, I'm gonna really struggle in this podcast because my wife will say I'm certified adult ADHD. Um, there's no there's no way around it. So I can chase rabbit trails all day long. And and with your books and with your work, it's it's the type of work that as a co- if I was in college, it's it's the kind of information that I would have enjoyed. Um, but you don't get a lot of that with with where I went to school. So. Um, I'm really going to enjoy this podcast, needless to say. And I'm curious, with all your work and travels um, out of Tennessee, how often, if you could, give us a percentage of the land or the landowners you work with, what percentage of their properties would be timber? Most of them are at least 75%. uh, Relatively few in the eastern U.S., have more than 25% coverage of open area, whether open area may be old fields or agriculture or something else. Of course, the majority of most properties is is forested. 
I guess follow-up question for that would be how m- many times do you see the forest being managed in a in a percentage that you would qualify as actually being managed? M- many of them do something, but the vast majority barely scratch the surface. And if I'm honest, I have never met with or work with any that do it completely to the extent Mm -hmm. of which that it could be done. Uh, That's, I'm not trying to be negative, but to be honest with you, (laughs) it's it's extremely uh, seldom if, if it, if it ever occurs. Well, if if you will, why do you think that is? Is it a fear of managing timber or or a lack of knowledge or do you believe that it is a lack of resources to be able to do that? Um one is is ignorance or lack of knowledge, you know, on how to do so and and when I say ignorant, I'm not trying to be offensive. That's an honest word. If if you don't have knowledge of something, then you're in, ignorant of it. And we're all ignorant of of many, many things. But if you don't know what to do in your woods, then you know, you're probably not going to do it or at least do the right thing. Sure. Uh two, number two is the perception that it's too much. Mm-hmm. I, I can't I can't I can't do that. Uh three when they don't get the information on how they could do it, they hear a lot about forest management within the context of timber management. You know, you're managing the forest for the trees and timber, and then certainly that's uh, uh, very worthwhile in, in many, many circumstances. And they think about getting perhaps a forestry consultant or someone with a state forestry agency uh, to help them with a management plan and a forest management plan, and that's exactly what they should do. But uh, the vast majority of times, those plans with regard to forest management are written with regard to bettering the timber resource, not necessarily and certainly not focused on the wildlife resource. And so in explaining to them how different things could be done, for example, if you're managing your property specific for whitetail deer, you know, they kind of look back and say, oh, okay. And then you go through what all that could be done, and they see that as an overwhelming task. And uh, for for some property owners, that would be true, you know, according to how much property they have. But, but for most, it's not. You know, and what I try to share with them is is you and one other person. If 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 you, for example, are running a chainsaw and somebody else has uh, a squirt bottle, you're looking at treating roughly eight to ten acres a day. And mm-hmm. you know, if you do the math, and particularly if you if you got uh, you know a partner, you know someone else who is managing the property with you, and then if you have two or three crews of two people, all of a sudden. You're you're knocking some acreage out, you know, some significant acreage, and you can make vast improvements to forest acreage, both with regard to the quality of the cover that is provided, as well as the amount and quality of the food that is provided, and that is particularly true for deer and turkeys. Absolutely, I'm going to shadow that. That's the exact same thing that that we see uh, from a. Uh, a stance of why people don't engage in managing the timber. It's 
it's almost too much to bear for a, for a lot of them. Like they don't want to get in and and tackle that big of a project. And and not only that, but they a lot of the time devoted typically is in the food plot world, uh, food plot trail cameras, things like that. And and it, we just try to get our people, our listeners, to be encouraged to go. Even if you took one year and just devoted all your time into timber management, uh, and this is where we get a lot of feedback from our uh, our clients is when they start doing at least some timber management, it's like immediate, they start noticing differences in their deer travel patterns and where they're jumping deer. Uh, hopefully they're not jumping them a lot, but they start seeing a, wow, deer really like those areas that we went in and, and did some timber management. And... You know, it, it's not surprising that uh, there's not more people that do, you know, let's just say woods work because of the people that you're referring to, the vast majority of them are deer and turkey hunters, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So where do they get a lot of the information they have? They have a lot from websites and, and TV shows. And who and what sponsors websites, TV shows, etc., companies that sell products. And so, by and large, you get this, you know, uh, set recipe of things that you should do. You should plant a food plot, you should put out a feeder, you should put out a mineral lick, you know, you should do, you know, X, Y, and Z. But there's there's no sponsor, you know, steel chainsaws, for example, is not sponsoring shows to show people how to go out and girdle their trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know of an herbicide company that's sponsoring shows to show people how to uh, spray undesirable vegetation in their fields. And before we go any further, think about, the, the basic knowledge that you would have to have before you do it. Number one, you got to know what trees you're killing and what trees you're saving and why. Yes, that's right. Yep. In, in field settings, you got to know, okay, what are those plants out there and which one should I kill and which one should I keep? That's now, right. And who knows that? Who knows that? Well, very, very few people have taken, you know, the time to learn at least the dominant plants in their fields or, or the, the tree species uh, that are in their woods. And, and you really can't work on many of these things unless you have that basic knowledge that's right absolutely you know i had this conversation with my brother and matt i think the other day last week of it for for the common landowner it is i guess humorous but then i'm i want to go back in time and smack the people that named these plants because in today's world weed has such a negative connotation but you look at some of the the we uh, the the species I almost did it myself the species that are on a landscape and they have weed in the name so automatically we think oh that's bad rag weed yeah. milk weed iron weed poke weed all these things and then you look at some of our invasives and you've got tree of heaven and all these things and you're yeah. like well those sound really cool and the ones that are great sound terrible yeah and and I understand and appreciate the hesitancy to try and start learning plants, uh, you know, trees included. You know, that, that seems to most people to be a daunting task, mm-hmm. but, but it's not. Once you get into it, you know, and I tell people, just, just buy a plant ID guide. It's just as simple, 
you know, the dominant plants out there are almost always going to be in any of a number of plant ID guys that you would get, and the dominant trees in your woods will be relatively easy to figure out. I mean, if you just Google uh, trees of Missouri, I mean, you're, you're going to see nice color pictures and descriptive examples of the dominant species that are found in Missouri, and, and you can find out very quickly and easily information about their value to different wildlife species and how to manage them or uh, get rid of them. So it, it's just a matter of spending your time a little differently pursuing some information other than what uh, you might be doing otherwise. That's exactly right. It just takes time to be able to learn and that um, that devotion of the time. So I, I, I'm i agreeing with you right there. That That's a big, a big portion of why we don't see that people going and applying that knowledge because they don't have that knowledge of being able just to identify these species. So... This was what we're going to have to be careful I know. of. We knew as soon as we got him on, we were going to have to stay on track or we would chase rabbits and then realize we never covered the actual topic we wanted to cover. So, I've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. So we are <clears throat> we're wanting to discuss this, this article in Quality Whitetails. And there's all kinds of amazing information in this. But um, if you were to sum it up in... in a, a line or two on what you guys found through this research, what would, I, I guess, what would that be? When you release the crowns of selected trees, they produce more mast. Simple. That's I perfect. like it. That's exactly what we needed to hear. We, uh, I'll share a short story that involves this, so don't worry. I'm not going to chase off. too many rabbits. Um, we did a, so... Part of this pro- project that we're overseeing um, had a very, it was, it was very closed canopy, way overstocked timber, and <clears throat> through the restoration process, we realized you know this this area has a lot of uh, native grasses and a lot of native forbs growing un- underneath in spots that have a little bit more sunlight. Web soil surveys telling us this should be an upland woodland, um, so let's just try to restore this area. As soon as we started, there was some trees to be harvested, uh, so we did a logging operation, um, followed up with TSI, and a lot of the comments that we got from the neighbors were, <laughs> well, you, what are you going to do with the, You're cutting all the oak trees, and now there's nothing left for the deer to eat. There's mm-hmm. no, there's not going to be any acorns left. And uh, and I think this research, we didn't cut a lot, of the, a lot of the white oak trees, bigger white oak trees that we knew were producers. And so it was, a, it was nice to read this article and say, Here's here's hard science. Here's data um, to be able to prove the the point. And, and I know you know this, I don't, this is not going to be jumping ahead, but in the article you say forty percent of the trees produce seventy percent of the acorns in your yeah. in your in your research. So you know you look across. Uh, you know not every single white oak that you're seeing or red oak that you're seeing is a great producer. So kind of break that down and how how do you guys study this and, and come up with this um, during the research process? Well, we had all these trees identified. I mean, you know, one, two, three, four. Uh, I think we had 120 trees in in that included in that project, and so we had those identified, marked, uh, and we monitored and measured the acorn crop from each one of those trees for five years. And after five years' time, we knew which of those 
individual trees were excellent uh, acorn producers, good producers, moderate, poor producers. And so we were to we were able to break them into production classes. And uh, what we found out both through the the field experiment and as well as research looking at uh, previous research in in the scientific literature is that this is largely uh, determined by genetics within the individual tree. Okay, there's just some trees that are really good producers and many that are that are not. And this is true with other species as well. You, you don't have to have a research project, to be honest with you, to figure this out. I mean, if you go into the woods during a good mast year for post oak, for example, or scarlet oak or southern red oak or pignut hickory, pick a species, there's going to be some trees uh, that, that are really raining the mast in a good year for that uh, species, and there's going to be some uh, trees that there's a little bit under there, and some that are that there's that there's nothing. I mean, we measured and monitored some white oak trees that that according to our data, you know, we never recorded them producing one acre in ten years' time. Hmm. Wow! And so, and so after five years, mm. we were able to place the trees into production classes. And then in the next five years, we implemented treatments. You know, like at, at years uh, at the end of year five, we implemented treatments. And the treatments were we thinned around or we released specific individual trees. On other trees, we fertilized, and on other other trees, we released them as well as fertilized them. And then, of course. Uh, another subset of the trees we left untreated to serve as our control group. And so we were able to implement treatments proportionately in each of the production classes of the trees. So, uh, you know, we didn't have a whole bunch of uh, thin trees and and hardly any fertilized uh, trees that were in a good production class or or what have you. So we, we, we... implemented our treatments proportionately across the production classes. And so then we followed that for another five years. And, you know, as you saw in the article, uh, the trees that were released uh, from competition, we either killed or cut down the the competing trees immediately adjacent to them. Uh, They increased in crown size, interestingly, uh, on average about 25% after one year. Uh, which, I, in, in my opinion, that's significant in very, and of itself. Very significant. And, and of course, that increase will, will slow a little bit over time. But we, we had uh, substantial increases in crown size, which then, if you think about it, that enables that tree to produce more mast regardless of its production class. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a poor producer or an excellent producer, if its crown size has just you know increased by 50% or 100%, then by default, it's able to uh, produce that much more mass. Do you follow me? Yes. All right. The, the other thing that we found was within those trees that were released, not only did they have larger crowns to produce more mass over a larger area under which you know their, their crown would cover, but also on a uh, per square meter or per square yard, however you want to look at it, 
uh, basis. So what that meant was the density of the twigs and the crowns increased because of the increased amount of light coming into that crown on, on all sides. And so that's where we found, uh, I think it was like a 67% increase in acorn production amongst the uh, the thinned trees or the trees that we thinned around. And there was also a good increase, maybe it was like 50% or something like that, in the trees that were thinned and fertilized. Now, that does not mean that fertilization decreased acorn production. And I've had some people asking me about that. Mm-hmm. That, ju- that, just, that just shows the variation in the uh, uh, acorn production, uh, you know, among all of these trees. So, you know, uh, there's really no difference in the 50% increase versus uh, a 65 67% increase. What that means is the trees that were thinned around whether they were fertilized or not, increased their mass production. In the trees that were fertilized, there was no increase in mass production. So, uh, and and people think I have some problem with with fertilization. I don't have a problem with fertilization. My gosh, we, 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 we buy and spread tons, literally, of fertilizer every year on food plot demonstration sites. But, if we had found an increase in acorn production from trees that we fertilized, right now I would be telling you, hey, guys, you need to fertilize your oak trees. And I would tell you the amount and the type of fertilizer that you need to use in order to do it so you'd have more acorn production. But it didn't work. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, you know, the data are the data. Numbers don't uh, I, lie. I, as, as I tell people, I, I have nothing to sell. Uh, I'm, I'm All I have is information that we have uh, gathered from, from data that we have collected and 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 i share that with people and and uh try to get, give them information that they can use so it's not that i have anything against fertilization it's just that uh it it did not work over uh, a five-year period now think of that with regard to any metric uh with with acorn production and so if i do something for five years and i see no effect whatsoever I mean, hello. It's time to stop and, and, and do something different, you know? Yeah, with, without a doubt. I mean, that that's just wasting money and time that could be applied to releasing the crown where, again, the science shows that's the benefit. And, and, and you know, we didn't use like uh, two or three fertilizer spikes per tree or something like that. No, 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 no. We We collected soil samples under each of these trees. And we fertilized around the trees and around the drip line and extending past the drip line of each of these trees to get the phosphorus levels through application of phosphate up well into the high levels and ditto with potassium and applying potash. And we also applied 160 units of nitrogen. That's 160 pounds of actual nitrogen per acre over... uh or around each of these trees. So I'm I'm talking about we we fertilized heavily. You know, if if there was going to be an increase, I wanted to see it. Sure. I didn't I didn't want somebody arguing, well you didn't put down enough fertilizer. Uh yeah, we 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 put down enough fertilizer and we know that <laughs> from from soil tests. So yeah. it wasn't some wild cast or anything like that. Sure. 
I've got a couple questions, and I'll ask this. So we know fertilizing the trees has, has had no increase and no effect. Do you find or have you seen other – that's kind of a practice that you – I know you've been asked that question a lot because I've sat in your seminars at QDMA conventions, and I've, I've heard people ask you that question. Do you find other practices within timber management that are as much of a fad or seem to be popular Sony. with little return? Within timber management, what do you mean? Like what? Any kind of any kind of other practices, or let's say hinge cutting, or I, I don't know what other kind of research you guys have done as as far as sunlight to the forest floor, uh, trying to do mulching versus felling, or hack and squirt killing versus girdling and spraying. I know you you girdle and spray. Yeah. To- that, there you go. That that's what I like. A- ask me more direct questions instead of something uh, really really general because I'm thinking about <laughs> the effect of group selection versus is too aged and when you're really asking me about my opinion on hinge cutting or hack and squirt versus girdle and spray right yeah i, I want to know do you have any kind of research success rate on killing hack and squirt versus girdle and spray versus hinge cutting anything like that um yes and both girdle and spray and hack and squirt work but if you do either one of them incorrectly they don't work or don't work as as well as they would um I prefer strongly girdle and spray over hack and squirt because if I'm using a small chainsaw, uh, you know, like a, a steel 170 or 180, which is very easy to handle, uh, I put a 14-inch bar on it with a with a, a, a chain that will actually cut, and it does very well. Then I can cut down trees, I can girdle trees, I can hinge cut trees. I have all kinds of options. Whereas if I have a hatchet or a machete, I don't have those options. Uh, I'm pretty much limited to just uh, killing trees, which is fine if that's all you want to do. Uh, it's, it's a personal preference. It's not right or wrong. It's just that I find there's uh, you, you have many more options if you have a small chainsaw in your hands versus a, a hatchet or a machete. Gotcha. So my my next question would be as a as a researcher and and I know you probably monitor plant communities is a, a lot even when it's not even part of the research. Did you notice through the thinning or releasing these oak trees a great response to other plant communities coming in underneath uh, underneath those oaks because of the you new mean summer. the understory? The understory yes, absolutely. Yes, you will see an understory response where you kill trees and allow more sunlight into the stand. Did you? And uh, the, the 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 threshold for that from from what we have found through monitoring the light levels uh, that that come into stands versus uh, with various treatments is about twenty to thirty percent sunlight. Um, if if you do not reduce the canopy closure, and let's just say you start off with 100% shade, uh, actually it's more like 97% on act, on average within a closed canopy stand. If you reduce canopy closure by cutting down or killing some overstory trees, and you allow 10% sunlight into the stand, you're not going to see much, if any, of an effect from that. But once you get to about 20 and especially to 30% sunlight, so what that means is you're killing enough trees to go from uh, 100% shade to 80 
to 70% shade. You're allowing in 20 to 30% sunlight into the stand. At that point, you're going to see a significant response from the understory. Now, according to how much sunlight you allow in past that, that may influence additional growth and different species responding in, in the understory. And there, there's not a hard and fast rule, but uh, kind of uh, a common theme that we see is, is you strongly begin to see more truly early successional forbs and grasses coming in when you're allowing uh, in the neighborhood of 70 and, and more percent sunlight into the stand. So even at 50% sunlight, so cutting or, or killing 50% of the trees in the woods, for example, you're going to see a strong response by, by various forbs and brambles, but you're going to have uh, you know, a, a strong woody sprout component as well. Once you allow uh, in the neighborhood of 70% sunlight into a stand, so you've just cut down, you know, uh, 70% of your trees and you got all the sunlight coming in, you then can see different forb and grass species beginning to respond to that much sunlight. But that response then is going to be very short-lived if you don't do something, and this is in hardwood stands, if you don't do something to control the competition from the woody sprouts, because it's going to be, it's going to be very, very strong. Now, if you're, if you're in pine stands, um, you're not going to have, on average, as much uh, hardwood sprouting coming in. Uh, let's say, for example, if you clear-cut a, a loblolly uh, stand, you're going to have a much stronger early successional component coming in because it, you don't have all of that competition from hardwood sprouts as you do if you were to clear-cut, for example, a hardwood stand. So there, there are very real differences in the plant communities that will follow whether you're talking about managing a pine stand or a hardwood stand. And then, of course, there's uh, differences whether you're on uh, a south slope versus a north-facing slope, south-facing versus north-facing, or if you're on a moist area versus really dry area. So uh, there's, there's lots of, of differences that you have to consider. And then uh, there's also, even on the same property, going to be differences in the seed bank from, from one area to another. So, you know, we're talking about generalities here and, and not necessarily hard and fast rules. Certainly. So let's let's take like an applied look at this. Okay, we've identified that TSI, you know, releasing crowns increases acorn production. And, and okay, we know that acorns are great from a forage standpoint. Um, they're highly attracted to attractive forages for whitetails during the fall and winter time, but that's that's the only role that they play. Um, so so let's take that information and apply it to a property. You know, one one of the lines in, in the article says, you know, you could kill or fell up to fifty percent of the oak trees, the poor producers, and still increase the overall acorn production in a stand. Let's say there's a guy out there He's got 40 acres uh, of a mixed hardwood stand. You know, what's that general recommendation look like for him in in that stand if he wants to improve the cover uh, with this information? Not, excuse me, not cover, but forage um, in, in the hardwood stand across the property. 
or where the 50% comes from is if you have identified Correct. your excellent and good producers and, and also the moderate and the poors, if you allow the crowns to, uh, if you release the crowns of the excellent and good producers and allow them to expand and uh, produce more mast, then if you're in a stand that is uh, dominated by, by oaks, for example, in that example, and using white oak, you then could, could cut down or kill half of your trees if you were cutting down the poor and moderate producers and allowed the good and uh, excellent producers to respond, you actually could kill or cut down half of your white oak trees and have increased acorn production as a result. And and that's not even mentioning the increase in the the understory, for, the forage that would be available in the understory by allowing the sunlight to come in after you've killed those trees. So it, it's very much a win-win with regard to forest management for deer because, number one, most stands, of course, are, are mixed species. So you would begin by taking out the species that are not desirable for deer. Then you're leaving the species that are desirable for deer. And of the species that are desirable for deer, if, with the case of oaks, you're identifying those individual trees if, if you know let's say if you're working in a small woodlot i'm not talking about over 200 acres but if you're talking about a, a 10 to 20 uh, acre woodlot you literally can identify those individual trees that are the strong acorn producers and kill or remove the the ones that are that are not good acorn producers so now every single tree that is left remaining in the stand has a purpose with regard to what it's provided for deer, and you've removed those that were not helping deer. And if I cut the trees down, for example, I'm either going to spray the stump to prevent it from sprouting, or I'm not, and let it sprout. So if it's a tree species that deer select to eat the browse from, then I allow it to sprout. You know, for example, uh, uh, an elm. Uh, especially wingdown, um, black gum, uh, red maple to some extent. You know, if there's a whole lot of red maples, I'm going to spray about half of them. I'm going to let about half of them uh, sprout back. You know, if it's a, a black gum or an elm in this example, I'm going to let every one of them sprout back because the deer will hammer those uh, stump sprouts when they're, when they're sprouting back. Um, I also might leave a few others if I'm wanting the structure that is available from the sprouts. So I have predetermined whether I'm managing a particular woodlot either for cover or for forage or kind of a mixture of both of those. So how I would manage those is totally different. If I'm trying to manage for a uh, a bedding block, for example, versus if I'm trying to manage for a high-quality food source. And, of course, we most often do this with with fire but even if i can't use fire i'm going to manage it different differently uh depending on my objectives and whether i'm coming back into that stand more often than not with a chainsaw to continue to reduce competition and let more sunlight come in absolutely what well, we know from from cutting and identifying these trees we're gonna the, the top producers we're gonna get a better 
um, understory result from this as well as more food and production out of these acorns. That's a win-win. And we're just, you know, in this research really talking about the improving uh, the amount of mass production in these stands. So, you know, it's hard to find something wrong with this with this information from a land manager who wants to improve their property for white-tailed deer. Well, the thing you brought up earlier is, is uh, a, a misconception of many people and I think the importance of acorns for deer is 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 overblown mm-hmm. and you know before everybody throws sticks and tomatoes at me uh let me explain acorns contain fat that's that's, right. that's what deer are really getting out of acorns and uh and, and the energy that is obtained for that and that's important during fall and winter when temperatures are cooler and deer are needing that uh that source of of uh of, of energy however acorn production is very sporadic and even if you're including all the different oak species that might be in your woodlot or your section of woods, whatever, on your property, uh, you're probably going to have more poor acorn years than good acorn years. And among the white oaks, as we identified, you can count on about two good acorn years out of, out of five. So I do not want to bank on an inconsistent food source to manage the deer on my property. I want to count on a very reliable food source, and much more over, I'm wanting to rely on a food source that is actually contributing to deer growth and development. Acorns do not do that. Uh, We're talking about forage that is available from spring through summer that is doing that. And ironically, uh, a vast coverage of oak trees prevents that. <laughs> and this Correct. is seen on many, 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 many properties. And uh, so if I've identified those good acorn producers and I'm reducing tree coverage and allowing more forage to come up in my woods, and on average I'm seeing anywhere from about 20 to, to maybe 50 pounds of forage available per acre in woods that are not managed, and I'm seeing on average, on on average, about 800 pounds of forage available per acre in woods that I'm managing. That number one should be a no-brainer. And then, according to my management, I might get upwards of a thousand, even close to 1,500 pounds of forage available for deer uh, per acre in my woods. And and I'm not talking about biomass. I'm talking about the material, the the leaves, and only the leaves that deer would eat of the species that deer typically eat. So I'm I'm just talking about the the really good stuff. I'm not talking about the poor stuff that deer would only eat if uh, there's very little food available. So you can strongly enhance the, the quantity and the quality of food that's available in your woods, and by doing so, thus increase what I call the nutritional baseline of your property. So the higher your nutritional baseline, then the greater the potential effect of things such as food plots might be on your property. Uh, Because if you're counting on your food plots to be the primary source of food, (laughs) you're, 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 you're going to be, you're going to be frustrated. 
uh, and it's going to cost you a whole lot more money than if you have that nutritional baseline pumped way up and, and really the nutritional requirements uh, for deer are met year-round, and then you can pump additional nutrition, make that available during specific times of the year, and realize even uh, greater potential from the deer that's on your property. That, to me, and, and, and it's been demonstrated, uh, makes a lot more sense than having woods and fields that are very unproductive and trying to rely on planting food and having that available to them through food plots uh, to, to carry the deer herd. Totally agree. I think. Yeah, and and, I and think obviously, I'm not saying that you don't need food plots. I mean, my gosh, I wrote a book on food plots. I'm a strong proponent of planting food plots, but I'm just talking about trying to maximize uh, your property for deer. Certainly. Absolutely. We, we, we agree 100%. Hit the nail on the head there with, with the balance of, you know, knowing where food plots fall in an importance level, but, but relying on uh, Mother Nature and the natural resources of a property to be able to feed and carry a deer herd yeah. um, throughout an Dessert. entire year. Dessert with food plots, as in they don't necessarily, we hopefully we've managed the habitat enough to where they can use it and, and benefit from it, but they can survive and use everything else on the property um, throughout the year. And that's coming through our, our habitat habitat management. I've got a, a question, um, Craig, in, in regarding to releasing these trees, um, you know, we're, we're talking great acorn years. We're, two out of five years are, are really good production years. But once these crowns are released and there is more space for, you know, maybe improving on pollination of these trees on a year, you know, year in, year out basis, do you suspect that you could have... Um, an increase in number of just general success of, of productive years by releasing the crowns of these trees. We know that those good producers are going to increase. Do you think that's a re- result of a better pollination as well as sunlight and available space and resources? No, I think that's uh, an effect of the crown getting larger and the stems increasing per unit area within the crown. Um, Other studies have looked at, for example, uh, the effect of of broad-scale thinning in a stand. And there's no information that I am aware of that suggests that enables better pollination, uh, for for example. Um, That, that, I cannot sit here and say absolutely not, but... uh, I'm not aware of the information or, or data that, that shows that to, to be true, but you're still going to have very sporadic acorn years, whether the stand has been thinned or not. And so I, I don't think you can imagine or count on having more consistent acorn production just because the stand is thinned. Even within a thin stand, uh, acorn production is, is unpredictable and, and sporadic. Gotcha. So across years. Yeah. Uh, let's say you own a piece, you yourself, you own a piece of property, uh, North Carolina or Tennessee, wherever you want, and it's predominantly timber. What does that, you as the landowner, and it's your decision, what, do, what would your timber lot look like? 
Um, well, I don't want to use the word lot because if you have, you know, according to obviously, if you know, do you own 500 acres or 5,000 acres or five acres? So there's uh, that consideration. But let's just say you have different forest types. Uh, you have different topographic position, you have different forest ages, and of course you have uh, various specific objectives for different stands. And, uh, you know, this might be more than we can get into in, in a single podcast. Yeah. But, for example, there will be some areas that if I'm managing for deer, that I want them to be thick you know, with a high stem density, you know, very dense stems uh, that blocks visibility. And those are going to be, you know, what I've called bedding blocks. I can count on deer being in those areas, uh, maybe 10 to 15 acres, and uh, you you know deer are going to be using them. There's certain sites, uh, soil types, topographic position, et cetera, in which I would place those on. There's other stands that I would manage to be more open, uh, receiving a whole lot of sunlight. And in particular, if I can use fire, I'm burning them quite frequently, and I am maintaining a whole lot of forage production for deer in, in those sites. There might be other sites that I might leave in 80 to 100% canopy closure. And... I might burn those uh, sporadically every, you know, four or five years or so just to keep the understory and the midstory quite open. And those may be used and may be important sites uh, with regard to thermoregulation during summertime because both deer and turkeys uh, may use such sites because there's good airflow in there. It's relatively cool. Versus being, you know, out in uh, an, an open environment in, in a field, so not all stands are managed in the same way, and it depends on where they are, what the forest type is, uh, the site, and I'm, I'm trying to provide lots of different conditions to meet the biological requirements of deer or turkeys or whatever the species may be during all times of year. And and that goes into your field management as well. So, you know, there's a difference in managing for cover in your fields versus managing for foods, and you can mesh those together, but uh, with regard to helping with thermoregulation, you know, you think about the temperature that's in the middle of a wide open field, it's very hot in, you know, July, for example. So if you have some shrub cover developing in your field, don't look at that as being terrible. I, I definitely want some shrub cover in, in old field communities that I'm managing for deer because if I have clumps of shrubs, you know, here and there and, and over there, in virtually every one of those, there's going to be deer beds. That They select those in a big way because they're cooler. You know, why would you or I want to lay out in the middle of the hot, briling sun when we could be, you know, in a, in a shaded environment where it's much more comfortable. So, you know, there's a certain amount of common sense that you can put into this and, and think it, you know, not everything needs to be the same uh, in order to meet these biological requirements throughout the year. You're going to have to have a, a fair number of, of, 
uh, different vegetation communities across the property. There you go. Once again, diversity. You have to have yeah. diversity across an entire property to meet those needs throughout a given year of various wildlife species. I know we uh, we pushed you for time, Craig. Um, we appreciate you coming on, taking the time with us, and uh, sharing some knowledge with our listeners as well as Matt and I. And we can't thank you enough, and we will be seeing you in just a couple of weeks over in Ohio for QDMA Deer Steward 2. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. We always have a good time at the Deer Steward 2 workshops. Uh, great interaction among people from all over the country that, that come together. If, if you have listeners that have not uh, taken advantage of, of that, they, they certainly ought to consider it because it's a lot of fun. And, uh of course, I appreciate y'all giving me a call. Uh, getting getting the word out is uh, a huge part of, of what we do. If, if nobody takes advantage and uses the information that's available in the research, there's not much point in doing it. So uh, I know y'all reach a lot of people, and uh, always glad to talk to you. Much appreciated, sir. Thank you for your time. All right. Y'all have a good one. We'll see ya. See ya. Yeah.